1: If you had a young family and needed money, would you start a heavy metal record label to pay the bills? Can you learn wisdom from a Jimi Hendrix look-alike junkie sitting on a park bench in the middle of the night? And what would it be like if Metallica was living in your basement? John Zazula and his wife, Marsha, are legends in the metal music industry. With Megaforce Records, they helped launch a genre of music that marches on to this day. That said, the road to fame and fortune was a very rocky road. And today, Johnny Z and I discuss his path from Wall Street to jail to Metal Hall of Fame. I'm really curious, as I went through your book, I, what struck me first and foremost was that you had a life before you started Megaforce with Marsha and uh, I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that life. I mean, you were selling insurance you, and then on Wall Street. And just just kind of give us a, a sense of what life was like before Megaforce.
2: Well, life wasn't very good before Megaforce. I mean, it was great that I had Marsha. You know, she's – thank God she was there, you know? Yeah. But life really uh, sucked, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I basically, you know, lived on the streets for a while, took good care of myself the best I can, ended up on Wall Street, got in trouble with the wrong people, ended up doing time, ended up dead broke, ended up opening up a flea market to make 70 bucks a weekend to support my shopping for food because we had no money for food. After my two hundred twenty-five dollars a week salary was taxed, you know. So what can I say? Life before Megaforce and life during Megaforce for a while was the same way. I was going to say
1: it was it was quite an up and down as as I read about it. I I I just wondered, it was like, okay, was there was it like, okay, this is our ticket out. We're going to start a record label that focuses on metal music and not just any metal music, but like metal music that isn't really in the mainstream. Was that a conscious choice or just like, I just love this music and I want to get it out in the world. How did you, how did you decide on that?
2: Money had nothing to do with it. It was this crazy drive to bring it to the forefront or get the music out there. I was a major fan in love with this music and I just wanted it in front of everybody else. And I figured if I liked it, other people would like it. And if I don't have it, they don't have it. So let's bring it.
1: How did you? And and so you were you you like you said you you gone from Wall Street to getting in trouble. You were in halfway house. Right. You started the flea market. You started selling buying and selling records at the at the flea market, and then got into show promotion. Right. You started putting on some shows. You had Anvil come in, and and that's that was started it. The people
2: in the store said, Johnny, could you bring us a band to maybe look at? We have this little auditorium at the side of the flea market. What do you think? And I, of course, said, sure, let's go get a band. Let's go get Anvil. Let's pay for immigration and all this other stuff that you don't know about when you want to bring a band <laughs> over, you know? It may cost you X amount, but it's X amount times five when you finish.
1: And so you, you start this process, and then somebody sends you a, a tape from San Francisco uh, a little little band out there that nobody had heard of at the time. Uh, tell me about that little band that that you that you got.
2: Well, it was never a little band in my mind. They were always a great band with a great demo. You know, um, it wasn't that someone sent it to me. It's just that somebody came into the flea market shop and physically sprung it on me. They insisted that I listen to it. I didn't want to listen to the demos. I. Said this a million times, I do not listen to demos unless I hear them home. And they're good enough to play for the public. I'll play it in my store. But this guy was really up my ass to play it. He said, John, you're going to love it. So the store wasn't busy. I put it on. And the next thing you know, it history starts to shake, you know?
1: And that, uh, that uh, band at the time, uh, that was Metallica.
2: No Life to Leather was the demo.
1: Yeah. And so before long, they're sleeping on your floor. You've re- invited them out to the East Coast and started that whole process with them. Was it in your mind like, OK, now we're just going to take on bands and we're going to start promoting bands? Like, I, I, I'm still trying to follow this, this logic here. It's just like this. You just believed in it so much. What was your process?
2: We're just believing in it so much. Mm. It was as crazy as that. We were just insane. I think I'm crazy man. I think I had lost my mind and Marsha just said, go ahead, Johnny. This is it, man. You're right. You know, let's do this. You could do this. And, you know, I was doing time at night during the week and they were in my house and Marsha had to run the shop, you know?
1: And you got a couple, you had one kid or or two kids at that time?
2: I had uh, two children. One wasn't with us all the time. Uh huh was with us on every other weekend or on weekends and one was with us all the time uh i talk about it i think in the book how it used to get so noisy downstairs that cliff used to read little ricky you know big woman now a woman but used to read ricky bedtime stories you know to chill her out because it was so crazy Mm. the house and it was very hard to concentrate and go to sleep with all the noise and music playing
1: I can't imagine. So you're off at the halfway house. You're coming back. You're doing your work throughout the day. Metallica is, is sleeping at your house and <laughs> making a racket down in the basement.
2: While well, I'm working because they didn't get up till 530 in the afternoon. It's laid out all over the place. It looked like Gettysburg.
1: And so I'm imagining that as you're going through this process, you said you, you got this drive that... um Was there? I mean, what kind of self-doubts did you have? A lot of times when I'm working with people, there's this thing like, I'm not the guy to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. Did you have those kind of thoughts as you were going through this? All the
2: time. Yeah. All the time, I didn't know what I was doing, but I did know what I was doing. I always came up with the answer. I don't know how. And if I didn't know the answer, Marsha knew the answer. And we found the money. We found the way. It's a real miracle, the story. It's a real friggin' miracle how we pulled this off. Nobody would have done it. Nobody wanted to do it. Nobody believed in it like we believed in it. It was just
1: blind faith. Would you go back and do it the same way now, like knowing what you know now?
2: I don't know. I don't have the strength now to do it. I did when I was young. Yeah. No, uh, it's a different time now. I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what I would do back then, but uh, I think I would have done it the same way.
1: There was a story you talk about in the, in the, in the, uh, in the book, which has the, the famous phrase that just sticks out for me. Nothing to it but to do it. What was that scenario where you got that, that phrase? Because to me, it like, just stuck with me as I was reading, reading through the book. That was the golden thread.
2: That's cool. Well, you know, I was really shipless and without a direction, a complete un Unknown, like a rolling stone, <laughs> you know, uh, and this guy sits down next to me. I forgot what I said in the book. or do I remember? But it was like two thirty, one thirty to three thirty in the morning, kind of. And he starts sitting down and I said he looked like Jimi Hendrix. That's what attracted me to, to talk to him. He, he sounded like Hendrix. He wasn't Hendrix. He was not. He was just the dude. That was probably a junkie. That was a reverend at one time that was preaching and he caught me and we started talking in the wee hours of the morning and he whips out a card and gives me the card when I sounded like I didn't know what I was talking about and being a wise ass and it said nothing to it, but to do it. And it said Rev on the other side, just said Rev. And I just said, whoa, <laughs> whoa. I said, that's cool. And I I went from that bench the next morning with purpose out into the world. You know, I had a little bit of a, a kick in my stride, as they said, in the streets of New York.
1: What did that mean to you? Because a lot of times we get stuck in a place of like I don't know what to do. So somebody essentially you get the message, nothing to it but to do it. Is it just give you permission to try and fail and not give a shit? Or what was What did that mean to you?
2: And of course you give a shit. You don't want to fail,
1: but don't
2: give up unless you really tried every little way to get through. Mm. It's, it's like being a, I always say like being a football team that can't throw a touchdown pass, but you could get through to score a touchdown 10 yards at a time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You can break through that line. And 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 that's what it had to be, ten yards at a time, bloody yards, by the way. Yeah, bloody yards. But man, we did it because there was no other choice. I couldn't see failure. Could you imagine to be so blind you can't see failure?
1: What do you mean you couldn't see failure? Like you believed in it so much at that time, like you just knew what you were doing was going to work out. Or what, what do you mean when you don't you didn't see? It was just a
2: question of when it was going to happen. I really believed, like you can't imagine.
1: And for you, in your mind, did you have a vision that Megaforce was going to be in a 10,000 square foot facility and have dozens of people working there? Or what was your vision? That was the curse of it all. Okay. That was to be careful what you wish for. How so? What do you mean?
2: Well, because I liked it when it was small and in my house and cozy and not so so many lives at my hand that I had to pay their salaries and worry about their cars and their food and their homes and their life. And, you know, you take on a lot of responsibility with a company and it becomes more than just the music business it becomes the people business. So, uh, it was a great place to be Megaforce.
1: Hmm.
2: I'll just leave it at that. But I really do say, be careful what you wish for because it got too big.
1: It sounds like there's a myth that more is more, uh, and it sounds like there was a sweet spot in there for you where you got to just focus on, it sounds like, what, as I was reading through the book, how much you enjoyed being a part of the creative process with your artists. I loved it. I loved it. It was, it was like heaven on earth. I
2: love getting involved in the creative process with any genius. You know, sharing the mind of a genius, there's so much energy in that area. Yeah. I loved it, you know, that's why I love working with Al Jorgensen, you know, for ministry, you know, just to be able to be close to that mind and just see what drives it and see what makes it work and what comes out of it fresh as it's happening. Fantastic.
1: And so was it that the responsibilities of the organization that was Megaforce just pulled you out of that creative thing and you lost you know, just little by little kind of lost touch with the being in the, in the zone of of your genius.
2: Money raising became more important than anything. How are you going to have the money to pay for this? How are you going to have the money to pay for that? I mean, it was happening at a giant level instead of, you know, $1,500 to spend here. It was like 150,000 or 80,000 to spend on a video or 40,000 to spend on a little video. You know, it was $20,000 on a radio campaign, crazy numbers, mm-hmm. crazy numbers. And it just got to the point where it became like dollar signs and not that I wanted them, but I needed them to perpetuate the whole machine.
1: Yeah. And in, in, during that time, as I was reading the book, there were times where I wanted to pull my hair out. It seemed so stressful. The that that this machine got so big, and I can't imagine what it was like working with the personalities. I was in the music industry. I know that it's not the most sane place. So, but I, I just can't imagine how what a roller coaster it would have been like going through that process. Were there times where you just wanted to run away, or were there times like yeah? I'm, I'm, what was your experience like in those in those days? Did it get dark? Yeah, it got dark.
2: Remember, I, I talk about it in the book. I'm a manic depressive. I'm a bipolar guy. And when it got dark, the lights went out. Mm. So, so I had to really work very hard at making it light and bright for myself. So I didn't slip. So I worked hard, 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 hard and kept myself from thinking. And that's what perpetuated this whole thing called Megaforce. It was that mega energy, man. But it was not only mine, it was the team around me. I always say that. You know, I had a group of people that were dynamic and with us all working for a common goal, it really worked.
1: But it sounded like there was a, at least a part of it, which was, I got to keep running or else this depression, this darkness will catch up with me. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, it got me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It got me. I'm noticing that telecaster up on the wall there and saying, boy, I'd like to own that.
1: Oh, yeah. A little 52. huh? You like it? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no sweat, no sweat. Well, I'm, I'm just wondering, like at that time, did you know that that was that that you were that you were bipolar, or you just thought that was normal?
2: I didn't know really until I don't remember what year I started going for treatment, but I started many, many, many years ago, I believe. But they weren't getting it; mm. they weren't curing it. They were experimenting with drugs and making me even crazier.
1: Oh, that's got to be tough.
2: I think that during the period I sold Megaforce, I was going through trauma with uh, bad medications and things like that. Just not really kicking in and me falling off the side. Yeah.
1: Let's switch gears. When you talk about this drive that you've got, like I can't imagine being able to operate at the level that you were operating. And then to have an artist you know, in front of you that's saying, hey, you know, we want to be on Megaforce. And I'm curious, from your perspective, what had you take on that artist? Because I imagine there were good players and people that could write some so-so songs, but I, I imagine you were looking for that X factor, that thing that just jumped out.
2: It's very simple. A, they had to be great. B, they had to be fresh. And C, they had to, most important, they had to make the hair stand up on my neck and my arms. Mm. It's unbelievable how when a band is really raging and really getting to me, how the hair just stands up in my arms. And if I get that, and I got that a few times in my life, that band usually would be on Megaforce band. It was that simple.
1: How much was their desire for that a part of it? Because there's, there's a lot of folks that are just, they're pretty talented and they can kind of get up there and do their thing. But what if what if you didn't feel their drive? What if you didn't feel their desire for it?
2: It ended. It ended. We had bands that self-destructed. I don't want to name them. They're in the book. You could get the vibe of who they may be. But there were bands that self-destructed. And uh, it breaks my heart. But, you know, uh, you can't make things happen that aren't destined to happen, by the way.
1: Mm.
2: And there are factors that are bigger than myself. And I have to bow down to those things and say, hey, man. There's nothing I could do. All the king's horses and all the king's men ain't gonna put this shit together, you know. Right. So that's where things would die out there in the field.
1: Mm. I'm curious what when you would go into negotiations, because that's that could be a place where we win the win the battle, but we lose the war. And it's like you, it's a, it's a tough business as it is, but. To be able to get good deals in there, I'm curious how you approach negotiations, knowing that you were going to bump up against this A and R guy again, or you were going to talk to this executive over here again, or or possibly work with this artist again. What what could you tell us about that in terms of just how to relate and how to how to create win win scenarios?
2: Well, I didn't create a lot of win win scenarios. I created a lot of survive survive, what's fair and love and war scenarios. You know. I feel that what you have to realize is what does the other guy really want here at the negotiation table what does he got to bring back to his team that makes him look good and give him that but don't give him everything but make sure he really gets something to go home with and hopefully it won't be something that kills you
1: where did you learn that 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 skill I mean I could imagine that you learned out on the streets you learned that in you you know whether your background in Wall Street or whatever
2: from the game of chess, you know, I'm not going to say I'm the best chess player, but I try to keep it four moves ahead, at least some people are seven moves ahead. I'm just four. Mm. And those who are seven moves ahead, bury me every time. But you know what? If you could get up and walk again, God bless you. You live to fight another day.
1: Yeah. You know, Marcia is a key person in your life. Um, oh, yeah. Your name doesn't get mentioned without her name in there. She's just as, I'm, I'm, I'm like, where's her book, right? That's my, the first question, right? So when's she going to get her book?
2: Yeah, her first book, she name it, he was full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I want to read it. He <laughs> was full of shit, but who cares about him anyway? <laughs>
1: She was this, like, uh, just a, what a role she plays in your life of, of, of like, giving you, this sounds like a really grounding force for you, but then also bringing you great talent. Sounds like she had her own ear. Um, it's, an, it's a unique partnership in the sense that you guys were married, but then also had this business uh, arrangement. Uh, it seems incredibly rare.
2: We were, and we are a team.
1: It doesn't change.
2: Working didn't change it. We couldn't wait to get up and go to the office together in the morning. Mm. You know, it would be like that, and uh, it was all just good vibes. We had some doozy of, of 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 battles. Battles. I mean, we beat the shit out of each other once in a while. You know, just over little things like should Anthrax have keyboards on Armed and Dangerous? <laughs> You know, I mean, we killed each other over that. Mm. Forget about what the band even thought. It's just that what did we think? We killed each other. And I still don't know who wanted the keyboards and who didn't. (laughs) Just a battle. And we just battled over it. It was about five (laughs) hours. I remember it was brutal. And that's what it was all about. The music itself, we were so passionate.
1: It's amazing that you could have that much passion for the music and still have such a business going. It seems like once the business gets in there, we lose that, that ability to be so emotionally impacted by the, by the music. The music becomes a commodity.
2: Well, remember, it's very simple in this house. You heard other men say it, but Marsha is usually right. <laughs> in fact, always right. Let's, let's call it straight. You know, I'm just lucky to be around, man. It's really true. My parents used to say to me, you're lucky you found her. Oh, man.
1: I haven't met her, but I agree. Uh, just from what I've read about her, she seems like uh, that That whole, it's, you know, so many people get into relationships, whether it's with a business partner or their wife, and it becomes adversarial for some reason. It's a power struggle. And I get that it's no, you know, like you're describing, it wasn't a, you know, always a smooth road. But the, But the sense was that you guys were always allies. You guys were always on the same team.
2: We're always on the same team. You know, we fought for the good of the whole. But we stopped fighting after a while. It's really true, though. It wasn't worth it. Mm. It's just not worth it. And that's something to teach everybody. It's, like, ridiculous. You know, it's very easy to hit below the belt. You don't have to. It's unnecessary. You know, just go about your life and do what's important, you know. If you don't love your partner, don't bother. I'm very firm about that.
1: It seems like we could get really hung up on these these little pissing matches and winning the arguments, and not have that big picture. What you're describing is that awareness of the big picture. Don't sweat the small stuff.
2: Don't sweat the small stuff, or only sweat the small stuff and forget about the big stuff,
1: man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious what made it worthwhile because at the time, like you said, it raising money was a so important the staff, everything that had to be done. As you look back on this adventure, this, uh, this whole story of, of Megaforce, what made it worthwhile for you? Because like I said, we can just make it about the outcomes and the, the, the gold records on the wall and all that kind of stuff. But for you, what, was, what made it worthwhile?
2: It was a great accomplishment to come from where we came from, less than zero. And to have had a chance to accomplish in a time in history such great deeds. You know, um, if you think about it, I took a big hiatus after 2001. You know, my kingdom at its peak was only a 20-year run, you know. But it was a great 20 years. And the masters have now gone almost to 40 years in value and Testament, and Overkill, and Anthrax, and Ace, Metallica. They're all out there, you know, and they stood the test of time. And that's a good house to build. Any builder would be proud of that house. It stands the test of time, you know. So that's my little wrap to you
1: today. Yeah, I appreciate that. There's some great stories in there. I let the The acid in Amsterdam was one of my particular favorites. I'll leave that to the reader to go explore that one. But uh, I yeah. laughed my ass off as I read through that. But, and I, I again, I want to thank you so much. I'm, I'm trying to imagine my life without Metallica, without King's X, without Anthrax as a young person and feeling so alienated by what was on the radio and MTV. I was like, fucking somebody gets it, man. Somebody's putting out these great, these great bands. And it was you and Marsha and I, I, and your team. So thank you. We were crazy, man. We remain crazy today. God bless you. God bless you, Johnny. Much love to you and Marcia. Thank you so much, bud.
2: Beautiful interview and I want that guitar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if these interviews are helping you, then please visit the new man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.